The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works, begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so keeping in mind that uh, the only way that you and I can fulfill God's law is by what? Starts with a G. Grace. Yeah, grace. <laughs> Um, this is often a surprise to people because, and I talk about this often, you know, for most people, grace means sort of like the unmerited idea that God looks at you and sees something other than what you really are. And I think that's rather, uh, it's not helpful. I mean, the reality is God sees you exactly as you are and decides to do something else other than kill you, which is what? give you the gift of his love and his, and his grace and supernatural power to live as he intends. Like, that's what this is all about. And so I think grace is often, in the Ameri- at least in American evangelicalism and in other places, it's kind of a stand-in for, like, the word forgiveness, just, just debt forgiveness, right? Now, is, does grace include that? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. But imagine, imagine this. This is just a, a want. Imagine instead of your credit card company that you're in default in, that you're in default to, calling you every day, two or three times a day. They called and said, so here's what we're going to do. We've noticed that you're having a hard time making ends meet. So we're going to forgive the debt and we're going to help you get a better job. Like, and we're going to give you all the training you might need. And, you know, do you want to go back to school? Because we can help you do that. Do you want to get, like, a master's degree? Or do you want to do any of those things? Like, uh, and, and, and you might say, oh, but, I, you know, I'm not smart enough. It's like, it's okay. We'll take care of that, too. Right? It's like all of those things. That's, that's, so, so that's the image of, of, of redemption, right? It's not just, like, I'm going to cancel the debt. It's I'm going to cancel the debt, and I'm going to uh, make things better for you, right? That's the, that's the reality. And I think that often gets lost. And so we think, oh, just poor sinner. And, oh. Like, no, <laughs> that's, not, that's, not what it, that's not what grace entails. It is actually a, a supernatural gift, right, that, that is bigger than what you are by nature. That's, what's good, that's what grace is getting at. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's take a few questions from the end of the introductory section. Um, Let's start with 264 on page 92. For those who are listening to this on a podcast format, and I, I realized this when someone sent me an email saying, what book are you reading your catechism question and answers from? I say, this is To Be a Christian. It's put out by uh, the Anglican Church of North America and Crossway, and uh, it's, uh, it's fairly easy to get on Amazon, and you can get a PDF for free if you're interested in that. Uh, but let's, let's ask 264. How should you understand the Ten Commandments? I should understand them as God's righteous rules for life and his kingdom, basic standards for loving God and my neighbor. In upholding them, I bear witness with the church to God's righteousness and his will for a just society. Um, This is really important. The, The Ten Commandments point to two things at the same time. One is God's righteousness. Okay, so... Uh, in a sense, you can look at it and say that the, the commandments reveal to us God's character and will very clearly. They also reveal His will for a just society. So what does a just and perfect society look like? Well, it looks, it looks like a society in which um, people uh, worship God. It looks like a society in which uh, a, a break is taken once a week. How about that, 
right? Uh, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, it looks like a society in which uh, murder and adultery are avoided. It looks like a society in which people tell the truth. It looks like a society in which uh, uh, people don't envy one another uh, when they are not so wrapped up in material uh, possessions that they, that they forget themselves, no, they forget who they are. So that's a, that's a massive step, I mean, in the, in the right direction. Um, in addition to that, it's, we show forth, uh, we bear witness with the church to God's righteousness in keeping the commandments. Um, we bear witness to what a just society will actually, should actually look like. Question 265, how do the Ten Commandments help you to resist evil? They teach me that God judges the corrupt affections of this fallen world, the cruel strategies of the devil, and the sinful desires of my own heart, and they teach me to renounce them. All right, so uh, in the Ten Commandments, the, the lesson here is how to renounce uh, Satan. And in fact, it really does have to do with the threefold renunciations given, that are uh, pronounced at baptism. I've spoken of these in the past. There's a long, long, long tradition and it continues on in Anglicanism, of renouncing the world, the flesh, and the devil on the day of your baptism. Okay, so those of you who are confirmed, you remember this. It's that you were asked, do you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Um, yeah, and you say, I renounce them, right? And, uh, and uh, in the Orthodox tradition, it's so strong that, that, the, that you're supposed to spit after saying this. It's like, <laughs> I have no use for it, right? Um, and uh, I remember going to Carlos Colon's son's baptism and, the, and, and little Tanito, his godmother, just did this like, <laughs> it was just great. And I thought, this is magnificent. Uh, but, but uh, you know, this is, this is the reality that these three conspire against us uh, and, um, and uh, God judges them. That's the, that's the real key, is that God judges the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, God, God, uh, God has, um, you know, think about, consider judgment for a moment, right? Judgment is often given this really uh, terrible connotation, which is, you know, just sort of like God's going to send armies of angels to just go and kill them all and do all this. Well, uh, okay, there are there's some of that, right, hopefully, right? But there's, there's more about, uh, there's more about restoration and judgment. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to be in court for something, like had to sit in court and have a judge hold your fate in his hands. This has happened to me f four times in my life. I've had to defend two traffic tickets, and I've been in a lawsuit, and I've gone into the court for a lawsuit twice and then two for parking tickets. And, and uh, in all but, well, actually, huh, I never thought of this before. I've never lost. <laughs> Not before a judge in a court, but I've lost. I've lost lots. Okay, but um, the, uh, the the judge's job is not to bring down punishment on those who have failed. Often, the judge's job is to uh, put you in the right. Right. This is, in fact, what justification means from the New Testament perspective. Um, N.T. Wright wrote a whole book on this called Justification, and if you want more about it, it's basically the judge doesn't give a rip whether you're guilty or not, actually, at the end of the day, right? Um, you may be guilty. You might also not be. The judge's job is to actually set things to right, set you to right, set you in right relation to society. Um, and, you know, so here's, here's, here's one of my stories. Like, I was 16, and I was uh, in a traffic accident where I had uh, been driving down the highway, and I got rear-ended and slammed, that slammed my car into the car in front of me. Okay, well, how can you prove that, 
I mean, you're not proving that. Uh, the, the police officer wrote me a ticket for following too closely, because he said, well, if you were following at a safe distance, you wouldn't have hit the car in front of you. Okay, point well taken. <laughs> but, but I went and fought the ticket, and the judge dismissed it. Okay, well, same thing happened out in Marlin. I was, you know, making a turn and didn't get over into the left lane because there was a police car right there, but the, the turn was blind. And so I went in and talked to the prosecutor and on Google Maps showed the process of going over the bridge and coming down and how it was blind. And the prosecutor said, really? <laughs> All right, well, and, and he suggested to the judge that he dismiss the case, right? Well, this is, this is massive, right? It, it, keeps, it keeps not only society in right relation, it keeps people in right relation to the society, it keeps, keeps things in order, right? Um, of course, what is, what is the order that God wants for creation? Is it just for people to be in right relation to each other and in, and in society? It's actually something much more like glory, that uh, everything fits perfectly together, that we're in right relationship with God, that He's in right relationship with us, that uh, we are in right relationship with each other, and we're in right, right relationship with creation. Um, and that is the picture of the New Jerusalem that's given in Scripture, is not kind of like floating around in the clouds. It's better than that, way better than that. Um, it, is, uh, it is to be put in right relation with everything that exists. Okay. Um, and that is what God's judgment means. So, so that means overturning the corrupt affections of the fallen world. That means overturning the cruel strategies of the devil um, and the simple desires of my own heart. How do the Ten Commandments help you to grow in likeness to Christ? They reveal my sin in the light of God's righteousness, guide me to Christ, and teach me what is pleasing to God. Okay, this is actually a restating of, of a really wild thing that happens in the Reformation, which is that Martin Luther comes up with these uh, things called the three uses of the law. Um, Martin Luther was, of course, uh, you know, the, the kind of prime and first reformer in the, in the Reformation. And it was his understanding that, uh, that basically the law serves essentially three purposes. And there's, there's a bit of confusion about this in a certain sense, but it's to reveal my sin in the light of God's righteousness. Okay, this is kind of the first use of the law, he says in Scripture. Um, it sort of reveals me as a sinner. And in fact, in Martin Luther's catechisms, the Ten Commandments come first. So the idea is teach the Ten Commandments so that people know how sinful they are and then teach them about Christ, okay? So that's the idea. Um, there's a little bit of confusion about the second use of the law. It's either to be like what Paul says in Galatians, which is that the law is like a schoolmaster to lead me to Christ and in the ancient world to lead me to the truth. Um, or, Martin Luther says, it's something much more like, uh, like a, um, well, it, it's kind of like the law of gravity right? It keeps you from falling off the planet. Isn't that, aren't we thankful for that, right? It's, it's this kind of like God's law and God's pronouncements on the world and how it's supposed to be keep things in order, right? That's that. Um, finally, to teach me what's pleasing to God. And then in the Reformation, there's, there's a grand debate, especially in Lutheran, Lutheran tradition, about this third use of the law, um, to teach me what's pleasing to God. It's part of this question. is like, well, can God really be pleased <laughs> by you? And, and there's this grand question, right? Uh, does, you know, is, is God pleased by human action? Is God, uh, you know, satisfied by human action? 
Um, and of course, some people will say, well, no, I mean, that's not the point at all. God, and Martin Luther seems to say something like this. Well, no, you're, you're, you're a sinner and you're made righteous by God himself. That's it. You can't actually do anything of your own will that will cause God to love you more or be pleased with you. So, you know, forget about that. That's not that. If, if you do any good, it's because God wills it and it's to his glory that you do it and be thankful for that. <laughs> and that's that. Um, but I think in the Anglican tradition, there's this understanding that, no, 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 free will is maintained uh, to such an extent that, yes, you can choose the good, and yes, you can know what pleases God, and yes, you can, you can seek to do it. Um, you are not, your, your freedom of will is not removed. You can, you can continue in that. Um, so if you read, for instance, if you get really geeky, you can read the, ten, the, the 39 articles and you can read on free will. Um, and that, that'll give you a sense of that, that, that um, God doesn't sort of sit around defying free will and making you do good things that you don't want to do, nor does he, uh, nor does he um, sort of uh, say, well, you know, I know that, uh, I know that Lee is going to be a terrible screw-up, uh, and so I'm just going to sort of put up with it. Right? No, no, no. That, again, that's not what grace is, right? So you have this kind of odd thing that especially shows up in, in America, in, in the kind of Reformation tradition churches is this idea that grace, grace is just sort of a, a, a covering over of sin, okay? Well, Martin Luther didn't say it, but, but it's been attributed to him that he sort of looks at the redeemed human being or the justified human being as a snow-covered turd, which in his good Martin Luther ability to turn a phrase, right? <laughs> and, and the problem with that is that, I mean, that's not the biblical image, right? The biblical image is um, you've been seated where Christ is, right? So, uh, uh, you, you, whatever you are, right, whatever you are has been taken up into glory. Um, your life is hidden with God. Um, you have been, you, you who have been at odds with God, you have been kind of afar off, right, have been brought very near, right, through the blood of Christ. That's, that's kind of, read Paul and you'll hear this kind of language of being in Christ, Right? Um, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that you are where He is, right, which is at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means that you're clothed in righteousness. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you're, you're set apart as a people, you know, you're set apart for good works. It means to be a part of a church. It means to be a part of the body. It means to be a part of, like, all these things. So, um, there's, there's a much grander uh, idea here. Okay. And again, I would say, I don't know that Martin Luther would oppose any of that. I think he would say all of that. But but it's sort of this particular emphasis that's, that's taken up. And, and one of the things that I would just note here is Anglicans tend to be, tend to be um, moderately Reformed and moderately Catholic <laughs> in these regards. So the idea is, uh, you know, all right, all right, guys, there's a way we can, there's a way we can hold all this together. And, and it's not just to say, like, we're just going to be mediocre. It's a way of saying, like, there actually is an ancient consensus on these things, and we can look to the ancient uh, consensus for that. Okay. Moving right on. And, in fact, to the biblical answer to this, right, that's the real key, is let's not move to extremes to correct the extremes of the other. Let's, let's try to chart a biblical course. Okay. All right. How should you keep the Ten Commandments? Because they contain God's prohibitions against evil and direct me towards His goodwill, I should both repent when I disobey them and seek by His grace to live according to them. So here's that word grace again showing up. How do you live according to the Ten Commandments? By God's grace. Um, but there's two things, and there's, there's, this is important when we speak about the law of God, um, and this will show up in the, in the discussion of the commandments themselves. 
there's both a negative prohibition, right, contained in the law, and a positive um, prescription, right, to say something like this. Thou shalt not, and thou shalt, right? <laughs> and you'll notice this, right? There, there's both in the law, right? Thou shalt do no murder comes directly after shall honor your father and mother, right? Um, you shall not make any graven image, right? But you shall, right, love the Lord your God. Things like that are contained in, in the law. Okay. We all set? Ready? Okay, so, so there's both the positive and the negative. You have to kind of keep both. So, great way to put it is, um, thou shalt do no murder is combined with something like a positive command to honor the life of your neighbor, to keep your neighbor alive if you can, right? Um, that kind of thing. What is the first commandment? The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean that the Lord is your God? It means that I have faith that the God of the Bible is the only true God, and that I entrust myself to Him wholly. So, the Lord, this is a really important uh, piece of the biblical picture. Um, you may know this, that uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the name of God is this uh, four-letter word in Hebrew, yod He vav He. I won't pronounce it, but you, I'm sure you've heard it in a very variety of ways. One of the great mistakes of uh, linguistics is to say, oh, that, that, that means Jehovah, right? Well, it doesn't. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, what happened was in, the, in ancient Hebrew, this word yod He vav He was combined with um, vowel marking is above the consonants. And this is important. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. So the entire Hebrew alphabet is completely devoid of vowels. And you might even say, but there's like an E sound. Yes, but it's hey, right? And you notice this when you hear um, Hebrew speakers you know, pronounce words. It's hey, you know, that's how it works. Um, it's a rough kind of H sound that is followed by an E sound. Um, ha is another way to, is another word. Um, when, uh, when you get Aramaic, um, they start to add vowel sounds over the words in Scripture. And what happens is they go with this four-letter word, yod he vav he, and because Jews in the Second Temple period do not pronounce the divine name, they instead say Adonai, which in Hebrew means the Lord. So when you read an Old Testament translation in English, what you get is in all capital letters, the Lord, right? It says uh, that is the translation of the divine name in the four letters. But it, but it is pronounced in the, as if, a, if a, like you go to a bar mitzvah, you know, and you, you see this kid reading the scriptures, he's going to say Adonai instead of what's in the text because he's been trained to do that, right? Um, and, of course, uh, many uh, Hasidic Jews will, instead of saying even Adonai, they'll say Hashem, which means the name, right? Um, so, this is a really wonderful biblical tradition. But the Lord means God, the God of Israel, right? Okay. So, when the disciples call Jesus Lord, what do they mean? It's really simple. I mean, this is the God of Israel. Okay, so by calling him Lord, that's what they mean. So anyone who says, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, and the disciples didn't claim Jesus was God. No, that's not true. Within the Jewish context of the first century, they are absolutely saying, this is the God that we have believed in as a nation in human flesh. That's what Jesus' Lord means in simple 
um, simple uh, terms. Okay, so I want to give you that kind of thing right there. The name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is holy, and that tetragrammaton is what, what's often called um, is um, is the name, right? It is it is I am that I am. That's what it means. Um, it's actually the word that we use when we say Alleluia, uh, Yah. Yeah, Yahweh. Oh, said it. Darn it. I'm going to get struck by lightning now. But, uh, but Alleluia some can kind of mean praise be to Yah, right? Uh, that's, that's what it means. Um, so the Lord is this God, uh, the God who, who reveals himself to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, that's, that's, that's the God, okay? Um, and uh, that this is the only true God. That's what the law is basically saying. The Lord, right? Remember the first, the first word here is I am. Okay, so there you got it. I am. Okay. It's almost something like, um, I can't remember how it is actually put in the Hebrew, but it's something like you know, the, the four-letter word, uh, something like uh, Elohim, right? It's like uh, the Lord is God, your God right? Um, you shall have no other gods before me, okay? Um, in fact, in the Hebrew listings, uh, I'm probably going on bunny trails, but in the Hebrew listings of the, of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is simply, the Lord, I am the Lord your God, full stop. The second commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Third commandment is, you shall ma- not make any idol, right? Uh, because it is simply to say, I am the Lord your God, <laughs> straight up. Um, Furthermore, this fits with the ancient pattern of giving a law, which would be something like this. Um, uh, I, Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord of all Babylon, lay down a law for you, and it is this, right? <laughs> it's, it's the, the ancient law of the Hebrews is, I am the Lord your God. So there's an understanding of God's kingship and lordship uh, being put forth in the law as well. Okay, let's move on. What does it mean to have no other gods? It means that there should be nothing in my life more important than God in obeying his will. I should worship him only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. So this is to say that God must be absolutely first, not content to be anything but first. And the way Scripture puts this is by calling God a jealous God, um, which doesn't mean an envious God. We often use jealousy and envy, and envy uh, interchangeably, and they're not. Um, jealous means I have you, you're mine, and I am very wary of losing you. That's what it means. That's what the jealousy of God means. Um, um, I, I will not lose you gladly. <laughs> it's, like, it's like how a man is jealous of his wife, right, or jealous of his girlfriend. It's like, I will not lose you gladly. That's what it means, kind of like that. Um, I should worship him only and love, revere, and trust him above all else. For the ancient Hebrews, this meant um, avoiding the worship of other gods, Okay, so there were many gods in the ancient world, um, and, uh, and Israel's constant uh, temptation was to a kind of syncretism. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a Hebrew, and I'm going to worship the Lord, but I'm also going to worship, like, all the other gods that are in our neighborhood. Uh, this is the problem that Solomon runs up against. Um, it's the problem that uh, really all the ancient kings of Israel, many of the ancient kings of Israel, uh, run up against. Um, and, uh, and much of it has to do with marrying, uh, this sounds really uh, very old-fashioned, but much of it has to do with marrying women from among the foreign nations. So you hear this often in Scripture, that, uh, the, the, that there's a prohibition against 
uh, marrying women from among the foreign nations. And the reason is not that foreign women are bad. The problem is, it's something like this, that they will lead your heart astray after their own gods. Um, so that's, that's obviously not great. Um, and, and it happens with Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, you know, he, he sort of builds, uh, he marries like 1,100 women from around the world. And, and, like, <laughs> and he basically uh, builds shrines for all of their gods around the city of Jerusalem. It's like, so, so the question is, how well do you think that's going to go? Not really very well at all, okay, but, but that's, the, that's the struggle. Um, okay. Why are you tempted to worship other things instead of God? I am tempted because my sinful heart seeks my own desires above all else and pursues those things which falsely promise to fulfill them. This is, of course, how the, 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 uh, how the devil uh, tempts Eve in the garden, right? He says, um, he basically appeals to her quote-unquote higher nature, and he says, oh, you know, you'll, you'll be like God, and you'll know good from evil. And, and she knows, I think in a very twisted way, you know, uh, that she wants to be like God, because to be like God is good, right? But here's the issue. The issue is she's not, <laughs> And so, she's, she has to, uh, uh, and she knows that God has commanded not to eat of this fruit. Um, and so, there's this, there's this battle that's going on. Um, this temptation uh, is to seek out our own desires as goods above all else and pursue those things uh, endlessly. Um, but, of course, how well does that go? We can have a Dr. Phil moment about it. How well is that going for you? It's like, well… Not, not really very well. <laughs> what do we do about that? Well, um, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the trick in, uh, and I wouldn't even say trick, it's just how human beings work, is to actually uh, see our desires formed um, by what we do, um, by habits. Um, so there's been a lot, of, a lot of writing in the last decade plus of, of how it is that um, habits form our desires. And so there's a great deal of good to say, you know, part of, part of the habit of daily prayer, what it does is it, it forms our desires. Because here's the thing, what you think about daily is what you'll want. <laughs> um, so, so I've spent the last four weeks thinking about a bathroom, a bathroom renovation. It's like, yes, I've been thinking about that shower and that first bath and how good it's going to be. And then I took my first shower in the bathtub this morning, and it was a little cramped, and I thought, uh, it still doesn't fulfill my deepest desires, right? Well, why? Because I know that my deepest desires are not for the perfect bathroom, therefore something much better than that, right? Uh, and so, um, you know, you have regular reminders of this, and, and this, is, this is what, you know, the, the ancients all say that what, what forms us in virtue is actually doing virtuous things. So if we want to become, like, better human beings, What's the best way to do that? Practice it. <laughs> you have to practice, right? And, uh, and it's like practicing the piano or practicing whatever it is. You, you've got to do it. Um, you've got to do it regularly and daily. So if your aim is loving communion with God, how do you practice that? Prayer um, every time. All right. How are you tempted to worship other gods? I am tempted to trust in myself, my pleasures, my possessions, my relationships, and my success, wrongly believing that they will bring me happiness, security, and meaning. 
I am also tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. Okay. Uh, this is a very American version of this question. It's one of the things that I regret deeply is answered this way. Um, we, th there, was, there was an early draft of the catechism that a friend of mine was using in his, uh, in his boarding school out in California. And uh, it just so happened that not all the students there were Christians. Some of them were from China, and they'd been sent there by their very wealthy Chinese parents. And this one girl who was being catechized and had come to faith, she, she said, um, Father Foos, this, this, uh, this question doesn't really answer something really important for me, which is um, about actual other gods. <laughs> Like, and so, and so she was. Uh, he he was cast. He, he's rightly corrected for that, and and uh, never wound up really being firm in the in the draft revisions. But you know, I really regret that, that there wasn't this kind of like round condemnation of the worship of other gods. Um, it has to be that that is very much upfront. Um, we're tempted to worship other gods in the literal sense, not just like. I am tempted to trust myself and my possessions and my you'll yes, of course, right? We're we're our worst enemy and we do things and we, we pursue things that are that are you know, we pursue divine ends that are that are fickle imitations of the real thing. But there is still throughout the world great temptation to worship other gods. Um, I'm reminded of uh, Several years ago, at, at actually in the first GAFCON meeting, there was a there was a bishop who was from Nigeria, and he was very late. So, what happened when the when the Nigerian bishops flew to Jerusalem? Uh, this really wonderful Nigerian businessman uh, chartered three jets to fly from from uh, from uh, Nigeria to Jerusalem. And this particular guy missed the uh, he missed the plane. And this is the really fun part, because this was a missionary bishop who had been consecrated as a bishop to join himself to the Fulani people. Do you know who the Fulani are? They're like, they're, like, uh, they're like Bedouin tribesmen in the north of Nigeria. They ride camels and like hang out in these, like, it's really very old school living. But this bishop had been consecrated to do this, and, and he was basically like, you know, living with this Bedouin tribe, no email, no cell phone connections, nothing like that. He, he wound up missing his flight, and they put him on another plane, uh, but he was very late, and he wound up getting routed through Egypt. So this is a great story. He was, he was sitting in the airport next to this guy, and of course, being a missionary bishop to the Fulani, he's got no qualms about sharing the gospel with this guy. So he shares the gospel with him. He's like this uh, Australian traveler type. And this guy is just like, I guess I got to become a Christian. And, and he says, what, what do I do? And this Nigerian bishop, this is his first, it wouldn't have been this way for me or anybody in America. He says, you have to put away the foreign gods. That's what you're going to do first. And this, this Australian guy, he's like, well, I have, I have a god in my backpack. And I'm like, well, what is it? He's like, it's, it's an image of the Buddha. He's got this like statue of the Buddha. And this, so the bishop says, I want you to give it to me. <laughs> so, so this bishop is, this is the best part, the bishop is walking around this meeting in Jerusalem holding this 
Buddha image that he's rescued from this new Christian. <laughs> it's just like out of control. But, but it means surrendering the gods, these other gods. You have to, you have to let go of them, right? Um, and, uh, and Israel has a really hard time with this. I mean, this is, this is the whole thing that goes on in, uh, in uh, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Like, the kings are constantly doing things like setting up you really want to be shot. They're setting up Asherah poles in the temple. Do you know what an Asherah pole is? Okay. There are no kids in here, so I can talk about it. It's a giant phallic symbol, okay, which is meant to entice the, uh, the Canaanite deities, Ashtaroth and, ba- and, and Baal, to get it on for the sake of the earth's fertility. So the idea is that if you're racy enough in your depictions of phallic, of phallies, then you will draw the gods to bring fertility to the earth. So, so when you read, you know, the Asherah poles, right, and the Baals, okay, Baal is always, um, or Asherah, Asherah is always, the Asherah pole is, is a phallus, okay, but she's the female deity, okay, so Astarte. Um, she's always depicted as pregnant. And the reason is that uh, in the Canaanite um, uh, uh, mythology, Astarte or Ashtaroth, she brings forth the world out of her womb. What she's pregnant with is the world. And what does this mean? Well, it means that if you bring forth the world from your womb, then the world shares in your divinity. So it's a pantheistic religion. Now, think about the Hebrews for a moment. Think about Israel. What are they supposed to believe? In pantheism? Not even close. God is remote from creation. God is different from creation. He doesn't, he, he doesn't sort of share in the nature of the created order, nor does the na- created or- order share in his nature. Okay? This is why the language of Scripture is very clear about this. It's, uh, the human beings are made in the image of God, meaning that they sort of mirror God, but they're not God. Um, but in the Canaanite world, everybody's a little god. You know, your crops are god. I mean, everything shares in God, right? It shares in the nature, right? Okay. All right. So does that help? Like, you can really see how radically different um, Hebrew thoughts are on this. All right. Can you worship and serve God perfectly? No. Only our Lord Jesus Christ worshiped and served God perfectly. But I can seek to imitate Christ, knowing that my worship and service are acceptable to God through Him. So this is how Christian worship is acceptable to God. It's, how, it's actually why, notice this later on in the liturgy today, and you were here earlier, so you'll have to just remember it. But, but at the end of the Eucharistic canon, um, we say, by Him and with Him and in Him. Right? So there's this whole language of, being, of our prayers being offered to the Father through Christ. Right? Notice that the Eucharistic prayer is a prayer to the Father. Um, it begins something like, Holy and Gracious Father, Almighty. Um, it's all referring to the Father. But the prayers are offered through Jesus Christ. That's how they're, that's how they're caught up into God, is through the, the ascended Christ. Um, so we, we don't speak about perfect worship. Like, we don't sit around and say, well, how can we worship God perfectly? Let's figure out how to do it. It's like, no, we worship God through Jesus Christ. And, and I would say that this is actually more reason to put the Eucharist front and center rather than less, right? The Eucharist is front and center because the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, and it's by participating in the mystery of Christ that we enter into perfect worship, right? 
That's huge. It's massive, right? Um, and it's sort of why I say, like, well, non-Eucharistic worship is worship, but is it even approaching perfect? I mean, it doesn't really get there, right? It just doesn't really get there. Um, but that's, okay, I'm just going to throw it. That's, that's my take. It's also the take of the church throughout time and, you know, things like that. Also scripture, I mean, there's that too. So, all right, we'll do a little bit on the second commandment. What is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Um, so idols are essentially, uh, in, the, in the ancient world, they're, they're carved images. They're images that are set up uh, to be worshipped um, and to be served. Uh, so it, you have kind of two different kinds of idols. You have household gods. In the ancient world, you've got household gods. Like, these are the images you put on your mantelpiece, right? It's like, above the hearth, we're going to have an image of, who is it? Again, Ashtaroth. Why? Because Ashtaroth is awesome. And let's say you're newly married and you really want to get pregnant. It's like Ashtaroth. She's your, she's your girl, right? She's there to like help you out to get pregnant, right? And that's big. And she's also there to help your cows get pregnant and your goats get pregnant and everything, right? Because that's what she's about, okay? Does that make sense? And your job is to sort of light the candles and set the mood, right, for the gods so that they can do their thing, right, and bring rain on the earth. Because, by the way, Baal is the god of rain. Okay. Oh. All right. I'm going to leave it to your, to your imaginations. You can, you can get there. You'll get there eventually, right? That's how it works, right? Okay, forget it. Okay, I'm not going not to keep going into the racy territory that is ancient uh, cults. Um, but the, this is how it basically works. You've got all these gods, all these various gods, and in, and in the Greek and Roman worlds, you have these, like, very... Uh, fun gods that get involved in human life and, you know, cause problems and all of that. Um, but, but they are more or less, you know, you think about the various components of creation, and there's a god of each part. Right? In the Christian understanding, God is god of everything. There's not anything that God has sort of ceded control over to someone else. Okay? No demigods. Um, but listen to, what, listen, listen to what's, what's here. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, Okay, this is really important. Where is the likeness of God to be found? Right here. Like in human life, that's where the likeness of God is found in Scripture. Um, and we see this particularly in Jesus Christ, and you might be looking around this church and you say, well, you've got a lot of carved images here, man. <laughs> like, what's up with that? And I will just simply tell you what the Christian response has been to this kind of idea of, icon of iconoclasm. Iconic, iconoclasm essentially refers to breaking images apart. So it's this idea you should destroy images. Okay. Really rears its head in the 8th century and a little bit before. And then again in the Reformation. And put it simply historically, there are many in the church who, bowing to Muslim pressure, say something like this. We really need to get rid of our images. They're kind of causing problems with our neighbors. Okay, so they start to say, well, let's start to break the images. Let's start to get rid of them. Um, but Orthodox Christianity says something else, which is that the image of God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for the image of God, it's actually found in human life. So there, is, there becomes this very deep openness in the Christian tradition, at least following the Seventh-day Council in Nicaea, 
two images portraying especially Jesus Christ, especially Jesus, right, and the saints. Um, so that's the big image right there. And, and the big author on this is um, John of Damascus, a Syrian author who writes this grand defense of images. And it's actually called On the Divine Images. So um, this is this idea that God has taken the image of God. He's taken the image of himself in human life and he's redeemed it through the incarnation. Okay. So that all, you know, so that all of these images, which in a sense mirror forth the incarnation, are now redeemed. Now, you might say, that's hocus-pocus, um, but here you are surrounded by Stations of the Cross and stained glass windows and all this. Here's the other reality, too, which Matthew Milner, a professor at um, Wheaton, has opened my eyes to this. Every Christian's an iconoclast in some way, right? For, even for Roman Catholics, there are images which go a bit too far, right? For the Orthodox, there are images that go a bit too far, okay? But even Protestants have images, right? Uh, Protestants who will not even have an image of Jesus in their office because they think it's idolatry will gladly go see Mel Gibson's latest film on Jesus of Nazareth, right? Um, so this is not an issue, right? It's just completely, it, it, in a sense, it's a non-issue, but it's also an issue. So there's like this, there's this tension, right? There's, there is such a thing as too far. Okay? Everybody can recognize that. But there's also such a thing as not really enough. We need to have more images. It's really important. Um, okay. Okay, should we get going? What does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purposes of worshiping them. Okay, so these images are not to be worshiped. And this is really important um, because, let me just lay it all out, um, the worship of images is prohibited strictly. And John of Damascus, this great writer, he says that clearly. He's like, no, you cannot worship divine images. That is just not okay at all. Like, worship is due to God alone, okay? So, he makes a distinction in Greek. This is, this is fun. This will be fun Greek, Greek stuff, okay? I like Greek. Uh, so, there's this difference between dulia, which is honor, and latria, which is worship. Okay, so, what can you do to an image? You can honor it, but you can't worship it. Okay, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that um, I honor an image because it points me to something greater than the image. Does that make sense? Like, um, we do this all the time, right? I mean, I go to Taekwondo twice a week and I make a bow before the flag, before the American flag. It's deeply uncomfortable for me, by the way, but I do it because I'm in Taekwondo and I gotta learn it. Okay, I'm, I'm bowing to a flag, right, um, of the country. Why? Because I like flags? No, it's because I love my country, okay, and I'm an American, and, you know, it's, it's due, due to my country. Yes, I'm going to sort of make a slight bow, but that's it, right? That's really key to understand. Um, the flag is not a sort of stand-in for the country, you know. The moment you start worshiping the flag above the country, then you have real problems, right, because then you're going to, you know, all, all kinds of problems. Okay, and we all know this, right? This is really key, um, and John of Damascus even goes further. He's like, look, you know, think of a, think of a wooden cross, right? Well, you know, Ancient Christians were pretty bodily in their worship, so they would say, well, we, we would definitely bow before the cross. And John says, well, what happens when you take one beam from the other? Do you worship it? No, you put it in your fireplace, right? Why? Because one's an image of the cross, the sacred thing, the other's not, uh, and, um, and he's really clear about this, and I think that's a really keen observation. Um, but Christians had always, you know, worship, had always, not worshiped, had always given honor to objects and images, 
Um, and in fact, so the Seventh Ecumenical Council basically says, um, yes, these images of our redemption should be honored because of the redemption they show us. Right? That's really key to understand. Um, so I hope that helps you. you know. Now, must you honor images? Absolutely not. It cannot be required, but, but that's kind of where, that's where this goes. All right. So, neither to worship man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. I will say to you what Jim Packer says. Um, now, if you read his book, Knowing God, he'll say you should not have a picture of, it, of Jesus in your, in your house or in your office or anything. And he's modified, he's since modified that position. He now says, well, really the problem is making God in our image. Oof. Like, <laughs> that's the problem, right? And that's the problem with idolatry, right? Think, think about the gods of the Canaanites, these deities we've been speaking about. What are they like? They're like us. They think like us. They, I mean, they're like us. I mean, they're obsessed with sex. They're obsessed with beauty. They're obsessed with uh, food. They're obsessed with their crops doing really well. They're obsessed with the quality of the olive oil. I mean, it's just all those things. That's what the gods look like when we make gods. But Christianity, Judaism, are religions of revelation. God reveals himself to us um, rather than us thinking nice thoughts about God, okay? All right, how did Israel break the first two commandments? Israel neglected God's law, worshiped the gods of the nations around them, and brought images of these gods, idols, into God's temple, thus corrupting his worship. And we've spoken of this already, uh, the Ashtaroth and the, all these images of the Baal in, and, and in the temple. Like, Read First Chronicles. Read Second. That's what's going on in these with these terrible kings, you know, with very with with some exceptions, right? It's always like the father was really uh, horrid, son's better, you know. Again, father horrible, son better. That that's kind of how it works out. Um, but look how I mean, it's just awful. They're always bringing images in. They're always kind of bringing all these other things into the temple. They're practicing syncretism essentially. It's like, well, we know that God has said is the only God, and we should only worship Him. But what if He's not? It's like, let's hedge our bets, okay? That's syncretism, okay? Um, unless you think that this is something which we modern people do not deal with, you're dead wrong because uh, just in the last century, in the last decade, Christian churches have set up real deal idols in their churches. Images of uh, various bodily parts, uh, images of uh, all manner of things. No bueno, okay? Like, this is a real problem, uh, and it's got to, got to be avoided heartily, Okay. Why did the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshipped and served false gods by means of idols, believing that they could manipulate these counterfeit gods for their own benefits. Okay, so look, it's very much like uh, Ken and Barbie dolls in a lot of ways. Like, you know, Ken and Barbie, they're playing with Ken and Barbie, and, and you make them kiss, you know, and, and, uh, but it, you take it a step further, which is that by, by playing with Ken and Barbie in such a way as to manipulate the gods that they represent, then we get them to do the thing that's necessary for the earth to have fertility, et cetera. Okay, does that make sense? Like, well, it, it should make sense within the context, but that's, that's how it works, right? That's essentially how the racy, sexy gods of the ancient world work, okay? Are all images wrong? No, God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images, yet commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation. Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them superstitiously. We're gonna end up here and continue on next week, but uh, basically this, this uh, freedom to create images is really key. Um, 
And I, I want to say a couple things about it. One is that uh, in the Old Testament, we see that images are not forbidden. Okay? Moses, the people are being bitten by snakes. What should you do? Make a bronze fiery serpent, stick it on a pole, and have the people look at it. Okay? It's through this iconographic image of the dangerous, deadly thing that's, supposed, that's in them killing them right now, putting, being, being put up on a pole, the thing that's death to them becomes an image of life okay? through which they get life. Does that sound familiar to any of you at all? Because it certainly does to John the Evangelist who writes about it in John chapter 3, verse 15, right? Uh, that's exactly what goes on. So these images are meant to show forth salvation. Um, in fact, they're meant to, we could even say, image forth salvation. Um, and there's lots of this throughout the Old Testament, um, not only in the construction of the temple, but in various other ways and forms. Uh, and Christians have, have been very intent on this for a long time. You'll see and notice this morning, uh, we have a new gospel book, so we'll be looking for that. Um, on the front is the image, you have the, the, um, the tetramorphs, the images of the four, uh, four gospels, right? The, the cow, the, uh, the uh, eagle for St. John, uh, the, the lion for St. Mark, and the man for St. Luke. Um, and they all uh, are also accompanied by images of the four evangelists. Um, and if you look closely, you can see down in the, down in the bottom right-hand corner the image of Luke the evangelist uh, with an icon in front of him. And by tradition, this was Luke, Luke was an iconographer because he was also a physician, and physicians were good at drawing the body. That's what actually a physician was actually really good at, was kind of like doing dissections of human remains and, and drawing out, like, oh, this is what the human body is all about. So be looking for that. That's kind of cool. Uh, and, um, but lastly, you know, the images of Jesus um, with his foot on a, on a globe. Okay, so look for this. His foot's on the globe, and the globe is actually an ancient kind of map. This is really fun. Um, I forget what the map's called. Um, but, but the map is a very simple circle, and it has three sets of Hebrew words on it. And the words are the names of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, you'll note that they're actually laid out like an ancient conception of the world would be, with Shem in the, in the, in the west, okay, Ham in kind of like Asia, and Japheth in Africa. So, it's kind of a neat thing, right? You'll see all of that kind of working there. But it's the image of Christ reigning supreme over all creation and over all nations. So, is that a good image? What does it do? It teaches us, right? It teaches us something really important. It, it, it instructs us. And, and you'll note, we carry the gospel up high. You know, we, we'll even, I kiss it, right? Am I worshiping the gospel book? No, I'm giving honor to Christ who gives us his good news, right? So that's the, that's the key. All right, thank you all. We'll pick up next week.